This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Festival of Friends returning to Gage Park. They got a brand new general manager uh, and, uh, of course, back to the old venue. What does all of this mean? Let's bring in Graham Rockingham, music critic, your Hamilton Spectator. You can read him there. And at thespec.com, he is with us now. Graham, how are you today? I'm doing fine, thanks, Scott. So what are your thoughts when you hear about this, uh, coming back to the old original location and, uh, of course, uh, new management in place? It's a huge transition uh, year for uh, the Festival of Friends. Um, it's, uh, they're going, it's 42 years. It'll be 42 years this August uh, that, 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 that the show has been going on. Um, and uh, they've got an awful lot of challenges ahead of them um, because uh, 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 Lauren Lieberman, um, the uh, always uh, high-profile uh, general manager of the uh, uh, of the fest for the last 15 years mm-hmm. um, uh, decided to step down. Uh, we knew that was coming. He basically said in the fall, uh, 15 years is long enough. Uh, I'll stay on. Uh, uh, I'll stay on until you get somebody new. Um, there was, of course, great speculation that Tim Potasik, who we know from Supercrawl, right. who's had such tremendous success with Supercrawl uh, and uh, and Sonic Onion Records, and as well as putting on concerts in Gage Park, uh, seven, the Seven Sundays concerts, and uh, he he did a blues, blues fest for a, few, a couple of years in uh, Westdale, that he was going to take over. Um, there was negotiations to that effect, and I think they went on into the... Uh, uh, late winter, and uh, they just couldn't come to uh, agreement. Mm-hmm. And uh, the per- new person um, who's taking over, um, who's stepping into Lauren Lieberman's uh, shoes, are, is uh, a fellow by the name of Robert Rocosi. Now, he's no stranger to the festival. Um, he's uh, 34 years old, but he's been on the board of the festival for, uh, I think, 12 years, and uh, the last five years he's been uh, president of that board. So, he knows what he's doing. Uh, he's worked in that park, uh, in Gage Park before. So, uh, uh, and uh, he has, you know, he's worked closely with Lauren over the years. So, um, hopefully, um, despite the fact that I'd say it's a little bit late in the game uh, to be putting together a, a festival of uh, this nature, yeah, uh, with all that, all the work that has to be done, uh, he seems to be uh, raring to go. You talked about the challenges. Uh, mm. What are the challenges in bringing this back? Obviously, uh, one of the main reasons uh, for taking it up to where it was in Ancaster, more parking, more a- accessibility, uh, bigger acts in the end. How is this going to change everything? Well, uh, Ancaster, they, they, one of the things about, I, I don't know the exact dollar figures, um, but uh, Ancaster was a much more uh, expensive place to rent, taking yeah. the fairgrounds uh, for three days, well, more than three days, because there's the cleanup and the preparations uh, every year. That was an expensive. So they they do uh, save some money by returning to Gage Park. There's no doubt about that. But there's also some revenue losses. I mean, they had parking for thousands uh, uh-huh. in Ancaster, and uh, anybody over parked there know that was ten bucks a shot. So that's a that's a big loss of income there. There is some parking uh, at the uh, Gage Park site, but it's much much less than what was at. Uh, uh, um, uh, uh, at the Ancaster Fairgrounds. So there's that, and just to me, there's so much work to be do, done in such a short time. Um, uh, there's a new, I know they have been busy trying to get book some acts, but, uh, you know, they, they've still got, uh, they say they've got uh, Saturday, the Saturday mostly booked, um, but they still got to get Friday and Sunday booked. And, uh, you know, that, you know, they can do it. They can do it. I don't know, and they still got to get more sponsors, and sponsors helps. You know, yeah. uh, it costs money to put on a free concert. Mm-hmm. Um, they uh, have some funding, uh, about eighty-five thousand dollars from uh, the, uh, from the city, which is what they've been getting traditionally, and another forty-five thousand from the federal government. Um, but that's not a lot, you know. Uh, just to pay the new general manager salary, which I believe is about fifty thousand um, dollars. That plus, you know, if they want to put a, a stage up in front of the uh, Gage Park, that's a good chunk of money. Mm-hmm. Plus, just uh, uh, the, the guarantees to the uh, to the acts they're going to book. Um, 
I'm hoping, to me, um, you know, they, they, the, the new GM says he wants to, he, he, he's promising a festival just as big as it's ever been. I'm wondering How can if, you do that? I mean, well, and, that's and, a and, good and, question. And is it fair to compare one to the other? Because they are, you know, as much as the name is the same, when they're in two different locations, it's two different festivals. It is, although, you know, the last few years of the Festival of Gage Park were just enormous. You know, they did bands like Finger Eleven were drawing record crowds. I guess uh, the point I'm making is, are, are, are you worried that the same old problems will arise that pushed it up there in the first place? Um, they could. Um, and and you know the park has been reconfigured in some uh, some ways. There's trees there where there wasn't, and there's gardens where there wasn't. Uh, so they have to deal with all that. Um, I'm I'm just concerned that uh, uh, I, I was hoping that in this transitional year, and and maybe that's what will happen, is that you'll have something uh, on smaller scale, more like the uh, uh, festival friends in its earlier years when it was just a nice little folk festival you know uh with multiple stages and where you, where you didn't have to fight uh, uh the crowds and and you didn't necessarily have uh, a full midway uh, uh et cetera et cetera but they uh, they haven't booked a bit midway yet, but they they're trying to do that again. It's it's late to get some uh, uh, something in, uh, like that because by now a lot of those weekends are booked. Yeah, yeah. And you know, going to the uh, Gage Park, it was fine and dandy for them to say in the fall when they did, "We're moving, let's go." But and they've always had it the weekend after the long weekend in August, after that civic holiday right. weekend. Mm-hmm. And they found themselves, uh, they said they w- they were aware when they when they decided to go back to Gage Park, but they found the park already booked by the Hamilton Rib Fest, mm-hmm. which had been there at the same time last year. So they've had to move into the... Uh, into the long weekend, that presents some uh, challenges itself. Maybe, maybe not, you know, because uh, a lot of other people already have plans on a long weekend in August. So, mm. so, but I, I, at the same time, there is such good feeling within the city of Hamilton. I can't say this about Ancaster or the people who are coming from Brantford Ways when it was at the the, the Ancaster Fairgrounds. But there is such a good feeling just about it being back there. Yeah. And I and I think they they they've got to run with that, and and the people will come just to have that uh, because of all the great memories. Um, they could rely. They will probably rely a lot on local talent, and mm-hmm. that's great too because we have so much local talent here. Um, and you know, it, the, I guess my point in all of this, mm-hmm. Graham, is this a good time to completely revamp the festival? And by that, I mean perhaps take it back to its roots, get it back to as opposed to try to make it bigger and bigger and bigger every year with the same problems happening, the same challenges because well, of the. I, I would the like to see it scaled down a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, frankly, uh, I, I, I find, uh, uh, the midway a distraction. Um, yeah. I always did. I know they've had a midway there for many years. Um, at the same time though, the more people you get in, yeah. the easier it is to get sponsorships. Absolutely. Yeah. And people want, uh, people that are putting money up there and putting their name on placards and things, they like to see lots of people down there. So that's a... It's a it's a it's it's a tough uh, conflict. And, How uh, much can you do with it in that location? How much growth can you have? Uh, again, are you maybe not better just to set up the perfect smaller version of the festival and then run it like that every year, as opposed to? That's my feeling. Yeah, and that's what I'd like to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, but maybe you know. I mean, especially in a city where you have things like uh, Super Crawl and, and, and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. I mean, you know, there's there's room for all of these, but not if they're all exactly the same, right? Exactly. And I think, uh, you know, maybe that's why uh, the board eventually uh, decided not to go with Tim P- yeah. Potasek from Super Crawl because they were worried it would be another... Uh, it's an extension of it. Yeah. An extension of it, or, or, you know, all these skinny jeans type people, uh, uh, <laughs> the indie <laughs> rockers uh, taking over Gage Park. I don't think that's what Tim had in mind yeah. um, uh, at all. 
but uh, uh, you know, me, I would like to see it scaled down again. Uh, I, I, uh, there's some things you have to have there that are going to cost money. I think you really do have to put a, a stage, uh, a, 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 a stage with a with a roof on it. Yeah. Because they, that's one thing that the, the park doesn't have. Mm-hmm. Um, if it if they don't put that front stage with a roof on it, yeah. it rains at all. You got to call it off. Yeah. And and that can be a a bit of a drag. So what were the burning issues that got it up to Ancaster in the first place? Well, there was, was, the the city had plans to to move things around, to make it more of a, more of a a family-friendly park, a picnic-type park, rather than an event venue. Mm -hmm. there was problems. I mean, there was controversies ab- uh, about the parking around. Um, there was problems with noise issues um, from residents. There was problems uh, uh, with what was. I mean, there, there was problems with the, uh, uh, the with the grounds. There was dangers to the grounds. Yeah. I mean, uh, if you had a, uh, a heavy so, rain during yeah. the weekend with all those people in yeah. it, and, and, and perhaps uh, uh, trucks and cars on on the uh, on the uh, mm-hmm. uh, the sod, yes, it just gets eaten up. So um, how? And, do I, you, and how... I think all this is, and then you get then you get the personalities, of course, too. Yeah. Um, I don't think you had. I don't. I don't think council and 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 the main spokesperson for uh, uh, festival friends, uh, uh, Lauren Lieberman, getting along. Yeah, yeah. They weren't playing well together, and so I, I, I think you know you ha- in order to pull off a big festival uh, the way Lauren wanted to, you had to be a bit bombastic and uh, and. Uh, and sometimes he graded on people, so there's no doubt about that. And uh, uh, in in council, so enemies were made, uh, uh, things were said, um, and then uh, and then it was off to Ancaster. And nobody, I don't think. So, how do folk feel about having it back? And perhaps the same sort of problems rising up again, minus, well, we'll minus the new management. I mean, I mean it's, you're still going to get crowds. If anything, you're going to get bigger crowds simply because of the reputation now. Now, obviously, it's changed, the, and the bands and the, it will certainly determine all of this, but um, there's certainly lots of publicity there for it. I, I think the, the neighborhood has changed in six years, too. Um, that has become a desirable neighborhood for... Uh, all the cool kids moving in from Toronto. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the per, uh, uh, a lot of the houses have changed hands, and uh, and uh, wh- all I can say is when that announcement was made by the festival back in the fall that they were coming back to Gage Park, I had nothing but uh, uh, great response. It was overwhelming, and it was and it was huge. You know, people uh, on social media were all applauding and saying, "Thank goodness." Um, I I don't believe I had one bad comment, mm. so uh, or one call saying this is uh, this is a bad thing. It'll be interesting to and, see and how and it all council, progresses. And council, uh, uh, you know, the um, uh, Matt Green and uh, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 Councillor Farr, they've both been totally on side with this, and uh, we're behind the scenes trying to uh, uh, make it happen. So. Uh, so I, I, you know, we can we can only uh, I'll be there for sure, and we can only tell when it happens. We'll find out. Yeah, we'll know if it's a in success. June, uh, what mm. kind of acts we're going to have? That's the first thing. Um, I don't think there's any. I think there's going to be rock and roll acts there on the Saturday for sure. Uh, it won't be just uh, folky. Mm-hmm. There will be probably a country-oriented uh, day as well. Mm. So we'll find out. And uh, and uh, to me, good luck to them. We all, I think, we all want to see uh, a successful event back in Gage Park that keeps everybody happy. Well said. Graham Rockingham has been with his music critic, your Hamilton Spectator. You can read him there and at thespec.com. Graham, thanks again, and uh, have yourself a great day. Yeah, can you stop the rain coming down? I'll try to. Do do we have a special dance for that, or is that how we got here in the first place? (laughs) Thank you, Graham. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, we all remember Cap and Trade and uh, how when introduced, I believe it was back in January, at 
added uh, four and a half to five cents a liter uh, to gasoline, and of course, uh, natural gas and any sort of fossil fuel burning uh, or any sort of fossil fuel. Uh, now, Ontario cap and trade revenue expected to come in below original government projections. Uh, is that normal? Uh, did we expect to sell it out? Let's bring in Parker Gallant, Vice President of Wind Concerns Ontario, and is with us now. Hello, Parker. How are you today? I'm good, Scott. And you? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. So what are your thoughts on this? Are you surprised? Uh, no. Uh, and I, I think uh, several people have come out and sort of said that they didn't anticipate that we would generate the kind of revenue that uh, was originally forecasted, which was, I think, $1.9 billion. So, um, yeah, and I think a lot of the money is projected actually to wind up um, flowing to California rather than coming back to us. So uh, so did the government expect that these would sell out? I mean, I've heard numbers that it's close to about 80% sold out. Uh, is that considered a success? Oh, well, I think based on California's experience, it is, because California's had a tough time sort of meeting their projected uh, revenue requirements on their cap-and-trade program. And, of course, uh, as of this year, we're joining them, or next year, I should say, we're joining uh, California in terms of the, the marketplace. So it will no longer be controlled by Ontario itself. It'll be the international market, which consists of the three the two provinces, Quebec and Ontario, and the state of California. But California's had some really bad experience in the last couple of auctions they've had. They've raised like 10 or 11% of what they were projecting. And how do we explain that? Why is that the case? Uh, just because uh, the, uh, you know, the, the benefits handed out. In other words, you know, if, I, if, if I'm a large corporation that emits a lot of gases, I, I'm given a lot of grants by the government. So those are basically grants that I can go out and sell on the marketplace. If I'm not going to use them, then I can sell them and make some money, right? So that's what's happened in California, I believe, is that, you know, they handed out more than they anticipated uh, or they more than they, they should have handed out. The same thing has occurred, of course, in Europe and where they've had, you know, cap-and-trade programs going for some time. Did our government expect to sell out on this? Oh, of course. Uh, that's what they were, you know, that's what they were basing their forecasts on. They thought they would sell out, and of course they jumped into it without, uh, my belief is, without any real, you know, cost-benefit analysis, not not considering the international aspect of, of um, using that, you know, the international market to trade the, the credits on. So, Will it sell out? I don't think so. I, I don't see how it will because we're losing more and more of our uh, industrial, you know, manufacturing businesses, which would be the ones lining up to uh, have to buy the the cap and trade, you know. Uh, so rather than participating, they're just leaving. Yeah, I mean that's it. They're you know say, saying we're not going to expand further here. Uh, you know we're going to start uh, producing more in other locations. You know if you think of the greenhouse. Uh, greenhouse business, uh, a lot of those people have said, you know, we're going to Ohio or someplace where electricity prices are cheap, where they don't have a cap-and-trade uh, tax, and so they're they're expanding down there. Uh, what happens because it didn't sell out? What does that mean? Well, it means that we're going to have a revenue shortfall, so, you know, the, the balanced budget we're supposed to have in the next year, or even this year, uh, you know, this is going to be missed. That's what I see coming. You know, because there's been a lot of shuffling of the P underneath the shells, I think, in this current budget. So, um, you know, to get it balanced, to show it as a balanced budget. And uh, I think, you know, the other parties, both the um, NDP and the Conservative parties, have both come out and sort of said, you know, there's a lot of shuffling of, of revenue that went around. You know, the revenue that we got from, you know, the sale of part, uh, part sale of Hydro One is a one-time event, you know, and you're not going to repeat that again and again. And the, and the province is also selling off a lot of properties. I mean, there's, I think the Seton Lands called in, uh, in, in Pickering, which was originally scheduled for where the airport was going. They're being sold mm. and um, for housing and industrial s- services, supposedly. 
that revenue will be a one-time event. They'll sell that 3,000 acres and get whatever they can get through a bidding process, and that'll go into the pot, but that land will be gone. We'll never see that revenue repeated. Does the average Ontarian know how cap-and-trade works? I, I Honestly, I don't think so. I, I, you know, it's, it's uh, much harder to understand than, than uh, say, a straight carbon tax, you know, why don't we call it what we should call it, and you know, and and people will have a better feeling and understanding of what what it really is. Uh, explain it in layman terms as best you can. Well, basically, if you are uh, a company that emits uh, you know, CO two, uh, they're going to measure how much you're emitting and saying you have to uh, reduce your your output of, of emissions by this much, by so many tons or metric tons. And um, to help you along the way, we're going to hand you credits. So these credits will allow you, as an example, in the first year to emit the same amount of emissions that you had the previous year that we measured you on. Mm-hmm. And um, if you reduce those, we'll give you some more credits the following year. Those credits then are available for trading. So if someone else says, gee, I'm going to emit more um, emissions, I'm going to have more emissions this year, then I can buy some of those credits. So the market is created. There's supposed to be a buyer and a seller. But if there's no buyers in Canada, or in Ontario, I should say, then those buyers will will be from another location, and they're not going to bid on le- you know bid up the market unless it makes sense for them. So the market has to be... Uh, if you will, um, there has to be more buyers than sellers. And that's not what we've seen in California, and it's not likely what we're going to see when Ontario joins that group. Wouldn't you have to have more participants in order for this to work? More what? Would there not have to be more participants in order for this to work? Uh, Yeah, well, uh, that's my view, is that, you know, by... Because you're creating a false economy, but there's a limited amount of players. Well, yeah, and particularly in California, where they've had this uh, up and running for, uh, I think, three years now. And it's being challenged in the courts, actually, in California. They're saying it's not constitutional. So there's always a question mark over whether or not what they're doing is what the government down there has done is legal. And so we're joining it. And what happens if the Supreme Court in the U.S. says, uh, I'm sorry, uh, this is, you know, this is not... Uh, a legal why why is it being challenged by the supreme court um i believe the i can't speak exactly but i believe what what um what the challenge is is that uh, they they didn't have the constitutional rights to impose that tax without uh, informing the general public and uh, so they just imposed it so who's California been trading with if they started all of this? Well, they just trade with themselves, basically. Yeah. I mean, And they're large enough to do that? Well, Quebec is a member as well, but Quebec has a, very, has a much smaller requirement for um, their program. So Quebec has just joined, and I think this is the first year they've been active in the actual, well, be active in the actual market. I don't now. think Quebec has the same problem with electricity that Ontario has no, either. No, that's right. They don't admit, I mean, it's almost all hydro down there, so there's no emissions coming from from the electricity sector. It's coming from, you know, industrial sector, like maybe Bombardier and people like that. But Bombardier just go to the government and say, uh, we, need, we need more cash, and yeah. they get it. Uh, is there any more Ontario can do to expand its hydroelectric uh, system? No, I mean, are we, the, are, the are we problem with there? hydro is, of course, you need, uh, uh, you know, you need a place to contain yeah. the water until we actually need it. And Ontario doesn't have the same yeah. geographic profile that Quebec has. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, does, you know, we also have to deal with the, a lot of the First Nations who, who lay claim to the lands. So if you're going to flood a valley or something, then, you know, you have to get all the First Nations on site as well. And uh, there are very few opportunities to actually create those flooded valleys in Ontario because of our geography. When will we know if cap-and-trade is a success? Does it not have to grow and have more participants in order for it to, to be a success? I believe so, and certainly with what you know, Trump is saying in the U.S., you know, he's not going to 
push the expansion of of a carbon tax or cap and trade and and uh, if, if that's the case you know maybe only california i mean there used to be i think seven or eight members of this group but those gr- those uh, other ones have dropped out over the years over the last several years so they're down to just the three you know it's california ontario and quebec uh, carbon tax versus cap and trade. It seems more are content with a carbon tax than they are cap and trade. Is that accurate? Well, yeah, I think, yeah. Then we can look at a carbon tax and say we know what it's going to cost us. It's going to cost us, you know, $10 a, or $50 a uh, metric ton, whereas cap and trade kind of gets buried, right? And, you know, uh, I don't know whether anybody listening or has has actually gone into say Union Gas or Enbridge's uh, 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 website, but they've got both got calculators, and then you actually can plug in the amount of uh, cubic meters you you uh, used and find out how much you paid in the way of cap and trade tax. And I did mine. I guess when my first bill came in in middle of January or late January. I did mine, and it was like twenty three bucks. But I'm not on an equal billing plan, so I don't know what it's going to work out to for the whole year. But um, you can do that, so you can figure that out. And, you know, on the gasoline, it's a little more difficult to figure out. But, you know, most of the gas stations now have a have a banner up above that posts and, and shows you exactly where your, you know, $1.15 yeah. or $1.20 is going per liter. And... It's kind of shocking to to see how much is is taken out of the price of gasoline in the way of taxes, including you know the cap and trade. Are there more uh, jurisdictions lining up to participate in cap and trade? Is anyone talking about this? No, as I said, it's uh, you know it's been around for many many years in in Europe, and I think there's been a couple of countries that have said it's not working, so we're getting out of it. Um, I think Norway was one of those areas that said, you know, we've had it for 20 years and it's functioning pretty poorly, so we're we're stopping it. And, when? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and and the other thing that's occurred in Europe is that there's been a lot of fraud connected with with the cap and trade market as well. People are are using their you know surplus uh, um, uh, credits and going out and duplicating them and triplicating them and everything else and selling them two or three times. When will Ontario know if this is a success or not? Are there uh, are there other provinces willing to jump on board cap and trade at this point? Because I mean, sooner, sooner or later, uh, you know, there is going to be a carbon tax of some sort. So uh, are other provinces opting for this or carbon tax? I think a lot of other provinces, except for Saskatchewan, they don't want it, either one, yeah. um, are, are being silent on it, which means that if the feds come in, which is what you know, uh, Mr. Trudeau has promised us, is he's going to impose it on everybody. So he's going to start off with a $10 cap and trade, or a carbon tax, I should say. So all the other provinces will wind up with a carbon tax rather than a cap and trade. Why do you think Wynne is going against the grain of Trudeau? He's looking at a carbon tax. She's talking co- uh, cap and trade. Why would they not be on the same page on this? I I don't quite understand that um, myself, but um, as I said, you know, uh, it may be because cap and trade is harder to understand for most people, and they don't call it a tax as such, uh, you know, um, so maybe that's the reason. I mean, I, you know, I go back to the, uh, the health uh, charge that McGinty brought in. He didn't call it a tax. He just simply said, you're going to, you know, as a family, you're going to be paying $1,500 a year more, uh, and we're not going to call it a tax, but we're going to, you know, but, it, but in fact, most people now refer to it as a health tax, right? So it may be optics. Uh, I have no idea. I just, you know, that's the only thing I can come up with is optics. How is Ontario businesses viewing this and just the uncertainty of it all and, and the questions we're discussing? Well, um, I've done a few quite a number of town halls in the past three or two or three months in different parts of the province. And what I'm hearing from small businesses is that they're not hiring. They're putting some full-time people on part-time duty. 
and and they're thinking if they're going to expand, they're thinking of expanding somewhere else, either another province or in the United States. So that's you know that's what's happening. That's what I'm hearing on on the street, and whether or not uh, that message is getting through to to um, Premier Win and uh, their people, I don't know. Uh, but it certainly has been fairly visible because uh, I think there's been a couple of groups that have been formed to to basically uh, you know bring this whole issue out and make it more of a of a you know a public. Uh, issue and you know so they can get attention from the media and get attention from the other politicians how uh what if uh, ontario elects another party um come the next election next year uh is this reversible how do you change this well i think you probably could pull out of the market quite easily by saying you know we're not we're going to revert to a carbon tax instead of cap and trade. Where does that leave business that are already participating? Well, you know, the businesses that are participating will be the ones that have had their credits handed to them, so their credits will become null and void as far as I can see. You know, that would be a relatively easy exit. You know, I'm sorry, the credits we gave you are not no longer void. It's like, you know, we don't use pennies anymore, so same idea. Uh, the PCs have talked about a carbon tax. Uh, how do you transition from one to the other? Is that possible? Well, I think so. As I said, you eliminate the one and you simply, you know, uh, impose the other one. And and uh, I mean, the one thing that the PCs have said is that they're going to re- they're going to make sure that it all comes back to us in the form of reduced personal taxes or credits. Um, you know, so it's going to be revenue neutral. And that's what British Columbia originally, when they brought in their carbon tax, they said it would be revenue neutral. It was for the first few years. Now there's some administrative costs that are creeping in there that are not, you know, not handing it all back to the public. But I think it's still about 80 percent that that goes back in the, in the form of reduced taxes of one form or another. How does Quebec view their cap and trade system? Uh, I'm not. I haven't looked at Quebec at all, uh, but I don't think their needs are nearly what they are in Ontario, because it has a much more limited sort of manufacturing base, as I said, than than uh, Ontario has. So uh, my guess is their needs are much smaller, and I haven't looked at their budget to see how their forecasted revenue is. But I would guess it's it's much smaller than, than Ontario's, and. Um, you know, they may be able to to get credits as well based on the Quebec itself, based on the fact that their energy sector is basically clean. You know, it's yeah, it's free and clear of of uh, any you know any emissions. What if uh, other participants like uh, Quebec or California drop out? Where does that leave Ontario? <laughs> and, well, and and I'll ask the other side of that question. What does it mean? for those places like California if Ontario's in? Well, I think for what it means for California is that they will, they will generate more revenue through, the, through their auction uh, because that's where we're taking, you know, that's where we're going to be trying to raise the money. Um, so, and that's where the market is. And so if people can pick up cheap credits to use for Californian businesses, they will, you know, they will uh, snap those up. You know, instead of paying, I don't know, uh, you know, forty dollars uh, for credits, uh, maybe they'll only have to pay ten dollars for credits. Which means that the revenue that will come from that will flow out of the province of Ontario because Ontario companies will go down to California to purchase their cheap emissions. Right? Uh, does this force companies, does cap and trade, force companies to be more efficient? Uh, yeah, but I mean. We've been doing this for, you know, we've been handing out money for conservation efforts to companies in in the province for um, probably the last seven or eight years. We're, you know, we we have four hundred million bucks a year that they hand out to companies and to small businesses and to households to, you know, reduce their their um, use of of energy. So, you know, they they a lot of the companies have basically. Uh, done is whatever they can to reduce their their output of emissions. So 
you know, they've converted all their lights from, mm-hmm. you know, uh, incandes- from uh, incandescents to uh, LEDs. They've, you know, insulated their plants. They've, they've bought expensive uh, machinery that's more energy efficient, those sorts of things. Reduced their heating costs, you know. Um, all, a lot of those things have already occurred. So, you know, you can only squeeze so much. And then, you know, once you squeeze 90% of, of uh, the emissions out of, uh, of the manufacturing base, there's only 10% left. And that 10% could cost you 10 times the amount of the, the first 90%. And I think, you know, a lot of companies are looking at that and sort of saying, you know, we've done as much as we can. Hmm. And in fact, I've heard from companies that have said, you know, we went through the whole process. We got grant money from the government, and we matched it, and we've, you know, created efficiencies. And yeah, we're losing using a lot less electricity and reduced our emissions, but, um, you know, our bills keep going up. Mm. When does it stop? When does it stop? Parker Galanis, with his Vice President of Wind Concerns Ontario, Ontario Cap and Trade Revenue, expected to come in below the original government projections. Parker, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Well, thank you, Scott, for having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, we talk a lot about mental illness on this show. We've uh, talked a lot about millennials, and now we're finding out a uh, survey says that uh, more Canadian millennials than ever are at high risk of mental health issues. Uh, student debt, shaky employment, housing prices, a lot of pressure to have what their parents have. Uh, an Ipsos Read poll shows that 63% of millennials are at high risk of issues. To talk more about all of this, Gary Dierenfeld is with us, social worker. Uh, YourSocialWorker.com to find out more. He is with us now. Hello, Gary. How are you today? Good, Scott. Great to be with you again. Uh, before we get into the uh, the millennial story, uh, we were talking about this, I believe, before uh, in regard to the YouTube family who yeah. was uh, posting... Uh, I, I guess there are uh, videos on uh, YouTube of uh, them pranking their kids and in, in turn abusing them. It seems like the father in the YouTube family, who I guess had two uh, kids there from another marriage, has lost those two uh, to their original mother. Surprised to hear that. Yeah, I'm not surprised whatsoever, quite frankly. I mean, how often do you get video evidence of uh, child abuse? And that's essentially what he was posting to his social media under the guise of, hey, isn't this funny? Uh, funny at, at his own children's expense. Uh, so do you think this will curb behavior in any way? What does this do for the discussion? Well, you know, first of all, it's, uh, it's good for the children that this stuff got discovered. It's sad that they were exposed to this. And I think it will, or I hope, it will send a chill and a message to other parents who might think about doing similarly uh, without realizing just um, how abusive that behavior actually is. Uh, clearer heads prevail. Uh, it gives you faith in society again, does it not? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All um, right. Marilyn got it right. All right, let's, uh, let's talk about millennials. Uh, millennials often the target of uh, many jokes, which is odd considering uh, it's us that gave birth to millennials. Uh, so we have to shoulder some of the blame here. Um, why do you think millennials are suffering more? Are they suffering more than other demographics? Yeah, they definitely are. There's a lot of research to support that. Um, a lot of the research has to do with uh, college-age uh, students uh, at college because at least they're, they're, they're at a place where researchers can kind of grab them and ask them questions. What the research is telling us is that uh, over the last... Um, Ooh, five to ten years or so, we're seeing a dramatic increase, particularly in anxiety uh, with millennials. I gave a talk about this very thing, Scott, uh, last week to the Brant Haldeman Norfolk Catholic District School Board. I was explaining that the rise in anxiety in millennials uh, coincides with the sales of smartphones. That, that the curves mirror each other, which, which may sound weird, but when you think about how the use of smartphones has actually created a disconnect between parents and children, you know, we're no longer talking with each other to each other or even through these devices uh, with each other. And in that disconnect, we have a lot of disenfranchised kids 
whose only source of support are their peers who, because of their young age, don't have the, the uh, wealth of experience on which to draw. So it's kind of like blind leading blind. And that disconnect uh, also creates an anxiety in youth. So serious problems associated with changes in technology that uh, not enough people are talking about. So you think there is a definite link between technology and this anxiety? Yeah, you know, we're always careful to say that um, a correlation doesn't equal a causation. So, so just because, you know, both curves go up at the same rate and same time doesn't mean they're necessarily related. But... You know, having said that, we can certainly theorize about a connection to the two. And it, and it, it doesn't mean that every kid who has a smartphone is going to have anxiety. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the present numbers, over 60% of uh, millennials suffering mental health issues, uh, you got to think there's something more to it and that there's something in the water of technology. What about technology exposing mental illness to more? Well, you know, that's another theory. So, so one of the theories postulated in the um, uh, article that I read this morning was that uh, because we're talking about mental health issues more and more, maybe that's why more millennials are reporting their mental yeah. health issues, that it's less of a stigma. Um, I don't know that all the other researchers believe that that is the cause and effect here, although it's a good thing that we're talking about mental health and, and millennials maybe are more apt uh, to talk about it, you know, because we are destigmatizing it. Uh, but having said that, we, we are seeing a rise in these issues. You know, how do we find the balance here? Um, how do we how do we change this? You know, and, and you know, I've got a 14 year old and we put lots of pressure on her to succeed in her grades and schooling and and, you know, you, you read things like this and you think, well, maybe I'm pushing too hard. Well, it's funny you say that because on Thursday morning I was talking with uh, grade 11 and 12 students through uh, the, um, the Brant Haldeman Norfolk Catholic District School Board. That's a mouthful. And I was asking them, you know, how are you guys doing? Uh, a good 80% of the group raised their hand to say that they uh, have some degree of anxiety, which is extremely extraordinary and you know asked what was stressing them another good 80 percent of those students said uh, parental expectations for those high grades so you know they are feeling uh, that stress absolutely um, I also learned that some 80 to 90 percent of those students uh, suffer fatigue uh, to the degree to which it will interfere with their schoolwork from time to time and also the the same students indicated that they sleep with a smartphone within a foot of their head. Hmm. But, like, come on. To say all these things are unrelated, I wouldn't buy it. And, again, it doesn't mean it's a direct mapping. If you do this, you'll have this mental health problem. But, you know, lack of sleep, uh, too much reliance on the technology, uh, lack of a relationship with our own parents because the technology interferes with us just chatting at the dinner table. Yeah, um, These are factors. Uh, you, you want to bulletproof your kid against some of those mental health issues, form a relationship with them. Um, you know, I, I, I talked about that these days parents are negatively activated by their kids. And what I mean by that is when they're kind of doing well, we kind of leave them sequestered in the room <laughs> behind the screen. We pay attention to them when they're bugging us. That's it. Yeah. And so the kids' experience of us is, is that negative. we're only punishers or consequencers or, or naysayers. Now I'm feeling guilty, Gary. Well, there you go. So we want to counteract that. We want to develop the rapport of the relationship, uh, not just on the negative, but on the positive, so that we have the rapport. Mm-hmm. And it, Scott, it's only through a relationship that we can hope to have influence. Yeah, true enough. So um, is it about learning to cope with the stress, or is it changing the way so we somehow alleviate it? Uh, I don't know that it's necessarily either of those. I'm coming back to the relationship. Yeah, Relationships are protective to the degree to which I am connected to my children and my children are connected to me. That is supportive. And so rather than just, hey, did you get your homework done? What about those days? Why aren't you stuttering more? Blah, blah, blah. It's, how are you doing today? Hey, let's make dinner together. 
pay, right? So that there's more to the relationship than just cracking a whip. Yeah. And that way the, the kids feel supported, and it gives them a venue to talk to you, the parents, about what's going on in their life. That mitigates so many mental health issues. So uh, more Canadian millennials are at high risk of mental health issues because of technology and lack of relationships with others, including parents. Well, not just others, parents specifically. We are so disconnected from our kids. You know, so, so Thursday morning I spoke with the students. Thursday night I spoke with the parents. Uh, Friday morning I spoke with uh, all the board's uh, teachers and educators. But in speaking with the parents, you know, I'm telling them, when you get home at the end of your day, you enter the house, shout, I'm home, and I've turned off my phone. That's already a weird message for the kid to hear. Then you hunt your kid down. You grab them. uh, I don't mean grab them aggressively. You take their face in your hands and give them a lovely kiss. Tell them you love them and leave. You want to give that kid an experience of, they are important to you, mm-hmm. and we need to be doing more of this. That is where the connection comes from. We want our children to feel safe and secure in our company, and that we're not there just to place expectations and harass them. How will our kids treat their kids on this stuff? I uh, wrote a blog about that uh, over the weekend, actually, uh, because I find that a very scary thing to think about. So I wrote about all of this. Well, that, you know, you look at the, you, you were talking about the YouTube parents. I oh, mean, yeah. is, that, is that what we've arrived at? We're going to have, you know, a, a group of, a cohort of, of adults who will themselves be so disconnected from their kids because they're not used to uh, being parented themselves. You know, I meet with um, couples and individuals who are of an older generation but where, um, more uniquely, they haven't been parented appropriately and they're having issues taking care of their own kids now. There is a trickle-down effect. I am worried for how our children are going to parent their children. I'm worried for the grandkids, my grandkids. They'll be parented via text message, it seems. Yeah, uh, so how do you do that? It's like, instead of yelling up the stairs, come down for dinner, it's, it's, a, it's a beep. So on Friday morning, I showed an image of a, uh, a device that will hold a baby bottle and a smartphone simultaneously, so that as you're feeding baby, you can surf your smartphone. Now, think about that. It used now you're going to gonna tell me it slips over the baby's face, so you're actually looking <laughs> at your smartphone instead of the kid's eyes. You know, it used to be that when we feed baby, we're looking into baby's eyes. We're exactly. cooing. We're coochie-cooing. We're, we're, we're being endearing to the child, like you and me when I tell you I love you. Yeah. But now when there's a device between me and the child, we're, we're developing that disconnect. I was shown an image of a, a, a toddler's potty, that has, you know, a mechanism to, again, hold the, uh, the, the, the device, yeah. the, the, device the, the tablet, and, you know, strollers as well. You know, heaven forbid you, you look at nature, now you've got to look at, it, at another uh, tablet. So, <laughs> you, know, you know, we were concerned about grabbing soothers out of their mouth at the appropriate time. Yeah, no kidding. So with this disconnect uh, between child and parent, the child... Uh, Uh, lives a life of anxiety because they're not being appropriately soothed by the adult. This creates uh, what we call attachment disorders. And and that carried into adulthood um, causes all kinds of anxiety. So it'll look like, oh, maybe it's the expectations. Oh, maybe it's the teacher or maybe it's the parent or maybe it's this. These issues have far deeper roots. And, And to get to the underbelly, we have to understand that as a society, the more connected we are online, the more disconnected we are interpersonally. It's uh, almost as if we have, you know, our, our life is centered around false friendships, no human contact. I was, uh, my, girl, my 14-year-old 
had a, a hockey banquet. We had the, some of the girls over after they went and played bubble soccer in a park. And, you know, so there's 14, 15 girls, and they're all on devices in groups. Yeah. You know, at one time would be it'd be so much noise because everybody'd be talking. Yeah, no You kidding. wouldn't be able to hear yourself think down there, or the music or anything. And now it's like the same groups, but their heads are all down, texting each other. I know, and my well-being is is connected to how many likes I got in the most recent post. Yeah, yeah. And I'm so afraid to not respond to the next post. You know, heaven forbid I get lost in that um, online, you know, texting war or conversation that how do I concentrate on anything else? So, of course, I'm going to be anxious. Will the pendulum swing back? It has to, doesn't it? Well, you know, I'm doing my level-headed best to swing that pendulum (laughs) back because I will have given over 30 workshops this academic year, Scott, uh, mostly to parent uh, groups, so about 20 to 25 parent groups. And I am forever singing these issues that if you want your child to perform better, just connect with them. Mm. Form the relationship. If you want to influence their behavior, it's no longer through discipline. Are we looking for other ways to do that? I don't want to do that. How about if I just give them the device? Well, uh, that's how we assuage guilt. I feel so badly for our disconnect. I feel so badly that I'm, yeah. I'm such a harried parent that I don't have time for you. Here, have this. And, and so as we assuage our guilt through the purchase of things, we inadvertently give children the impression that things uh, have greater value than the relationship. Are uh, are parents getting this when you have these workshops? Or, you know, and I'm a guy who's in my 50s, so I didn't grow up with this. But, boy, there's lots of friends who have kids the same age as mine that, that did grow up with this. So uh, the parents, the kids are sort of second generation. Can you teach the parents this? Do the, Are the parents getting this? Uh, yes, you can teach the parents this, and that's exactly what I do having explained what the issue is first. Because if you don't understand the issue, it's hard to get buy-in for the simple solutions. They say, ah, that's too simple. Why would I do that? But having said that, you know, through my Facebook page, I get people who tell me, hey, Gare, I followed your instruction. I did what you said. And, you know, it wasn't immediate. But over the course of the the next following weeks, I noticed that, that my kid and I are getting along better. Well, big surprise. You know, if you only harass and don't support or form a relationship, of course you're not going to get along well. And when you start paying attention to, to kids and engaging your own kids in, in, you know, things going on at home and getting along, of course the relationship improves. And, and that's healthy. Gary Deerenfeld has been with us, social worker, yoursocialworker.com, to find out more. Gary, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. And a relatively positive subject this time out. I... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we need some help as opposed to exposing the underbelly. Yeah. All right. Have a great day. All the best, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.